Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. All right, uh, beloved, please be standing for the reading of the Word of God. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke and then a section from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll start in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now turn to Matthew chapter 26. We'll pick up at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, He departed, and he went and hanged himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to the infinitely deep treasure of your word. We have looked at this story already one time. But so rich and deep and needful are we of this message that we come back to it because there is yet more for us to receive. Father, give us open ears, willing hearts, that we would learn what you want us to learn from this passage today. Father, anoint me in the preaching that the Holy Spirit would make this powerful 
and pure. And bring with it your promise that your word will not return void. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I am sure that this text is uh, a text being preached all over the United States for Mother's Day. And uh, I guess the Mother's Day version of this sermon is raise a Peter, not a Judas. Which, of course, one more thing for moms to feel guilt over. Yes, Judas had a mother. Uh, No, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. We are going to look at this text. We're going to preach to the whole body of God because male or female, mother, father, child, what this text deals with gets to the heart of living in the gospel. Our sermon is called Sifted by Wheat, Part 2. And just like the Godfather, every part two is, is the better. I actually am, am excited uh, to go through this text again. There is so much for the disciple to, to, to glean, to take a, a uh, farming metaphor a little bit further from this text. But last week we looked at sifting like wheat, and we, we looked at it basically from the angle of, of Peter of his being sifted, of his being tested. And we see that Jesus gave uh, Peter, his disciple, and us through uh, walking alongside Peter, three lessons of faith to help us persevere. And those lessons were that the enemy is mighty, that our will is wimpy, but thank God Jesus is almighty. But that's not all that we need to take from this text. Today we are going to go through this story and we are going to see an addition to those three lessons. Three gifts of God's grace that restore a true disciple when they fall into sin. Is that a message you need to know? Beloved, are are you presently in a fall? Are you presently feeling sifted like wheat? Feeling overwhelmed with temptation? Feeling like you have fallen apart and wrecked your life? This sermon is for any person who has ever cried out, What? Have I done? This sermon is for anyone who has ever had the the racking of doubt after falling into sin. Have I disqualified myself? Have I proven myself a false disciple? This message is for anyone who has ever wondered if they are hopelessly lost because they seem incapable of winning the war with their flesh. This sermon is for anyone who lives with the fearful question, but what if I sin big? I mean, really big. 
I think those are questions that every Christian faces. And those questions press us against what we really think about God's grace and how big we think God's grace can be when it comes to me and what I've done. Peter has fallen. Peter has denied Jesus three times. And we are going to see today in this text how God graciously restores a sinner. What God does for Peter has been put into our Bibles to let you know he does the same for all of his children who fall into sin. When we fall into sin and we ask these soul-crushing questions, and whether you are there now or whether you have been there or whether you are going to be there someday, I want you to, to take heed of these three gifts of God's grace that restore a true disciple when they fall into sin. What are these three gifts of God's grace? Let us go through them one by one. The first gift of God's grace that restores a true disciple when they fall into sin is this. Remorse over the sin. The first gift God gives to restore a disciple is remorse over the sin. And here we are going to look at the account of Peter's denial in Matthew chapter 26 that is not accidentally mashed up with the story of Judas's hanging. We have Peter and Judas brought side by side by Matthew. The commentator uh, R.T. France believes that the reason for this is to contrast the two stories. We have the two most known disciples of Jesus side by side. Both of them are denying, betraying the one that they walked with. Jesus denies Judas betrays. And as we know the full story, we know that Peter is restored and Judas is not. Have you ever wondered about that? Why Peter? Why not Judas? What's the difference? How are we to, to look at this text and figure out why Peter gets grace and Judas doesn't? Is it because one is a worse sinner? Is it because one does the greater sin? Beloved, we want to think that way. 
We want to look at these two stories of Peter and Judas and and find some glimmer of difference between the sinfulness of Peter and the utter sinfulness of Judas. And we want to lay the reason for the difference in Peter or in Judas. But let me say this very clearly. That is the wrong way of making sense of this passage. That is the wrong direction. Because the question that you should be asking is not why Peter and not Judas, but why either? Why Peter doesn't end up like Judas is the real question that we should be asking. That is what should stump us. Why is it not Peter and Judas as sons of perdition. Beloved, we will never understand grace until we begin understanding the gospel of who is saved with this starting point. Why does God save anyone? Why does God give grace to anyone? Because everyone is disqualified. Everyone is a child of sin. Everyone is a son of disobedience. We do not understand grace until we realize no one should be saved. No one deserves a second chance. And it is only when we get there that we can understand grace as grace. God saves not because we deserve it. God saves because he loves. And God chooses to show mercy because that is his right to choose to show mercy. No one should be saved. It's grace to be saved, not merit. Listen to to this laid out clearly by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the grace of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is why Peter does not end the same place as Judas because God's grace, which is unmerited by Peter, is yet shown to Peter. And how do we see God's grace being shown to Peter? This is is where we see this first gift. God's grace makes us remorseful, remorseful for our sin. We see God bringing grace into Peter in the midst of this night. 
by filling him with godly remorse. Now, what is godly remorse? Godly remorse has two aspects. It has grief and it has relationship. And we see Peter being afflicted with godly remorse when we read Peter wept bitterly. That word bitterly is the adverb of the same word that basically means to be sharp and piercing. That's what bitterness is. It's that taste that just cuts right into your tongue. And so when he wept bitterly, we are being told that at this moment, Peter's heart has been pierced. It has been cut deep. It is like what we read in in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, in Peter's first preaching at Pentecost. After he presents the gospel to the people in Jerusalem, we are told when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see, the remorse that God gives a sinner includes and begins with him cutting you to the heart with remorse for what you have done. It is a weeping that pierces your soul that makes you cry out, what have I done? That is the first aspect of godly remorse. And we see that in Peter. But you might say, because you want to give your preacher a hard time, what about Judas? I mean, look at chapter 27, verse 3. Judas, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I mean, Judas has changed his mind. He has has regretted deeply. He, He confesses, he admits his wrongdoing. I have betrayed innocent blood. He has said exactly what he has done. And he felt terrible. He felt so bad, he hanged himself. Isn't Judas also got deep grief? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that second aspect of godly remorse. And that is that godly remorse belongs to a relationship. When does Peter weep bitterly? Go back to 2675. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It is when he remembers the words spoken to him by Jesus, that his heart is cut and that he weeps bitterly. Beloved, this is not a small detail. Peter's grief 
was relationship-centered. He wept bitterly because he denied the Lord who he loved, who he sought to obey. Judas, his grief was act-centered. It was focused on what he did, not on to whom he did it. He speaks of betraying innocent blood, but there is no mention of it being his friend, the lover of his soul, his Lord, his companion, none of that. It's it's an abstract, I have betrayed innocent blood. Understand this. When, When God gives us the grace of remorse, it means you don't just feel Sorry. That's not the remorse that we are talking about that God gives. When God gives you remorse, you don't just feel sorry. You listen, beloved. Feel sorry to God. And that is a substantial difference. Your sorrow is directed towards God. It is born in the relationship that you have with God. Look at Psalm 51, the the, the psalm of repentance that David wrote after being convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. We're told this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's remorse is godly remorse because it's grieving the sin and it's grieving it to God who it's transgressed. It is the relationship in addition to the grief that makes godly remorse godly remorse. Against you, beloved, have you been cut to the heart over your sin? And do you recognize when you are cut to the heart over your sin that it's against Jesus? Is that what you feel? I have sinned against my Lord. I know that's a terrible feeling, but that feeling is God's grace in you. Paul describes this remorse as godly grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Here is the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter, by God's grace, is given godly grief. How do we know if we have godly grief or worldly grief? It's simple. Godly grief will take us into the second gift of restoration, which is repentance. Let us look at the second gift 
repentance from the sin. Judas reveals his grief is worldly as it leads to death. He hangs himself. You see, action-centered sorrow focuses on fixing the act. That's what Judas does. He focuses on fixing the act, not the relationship. So he gives the money back. And then he tries to met out his own punishment. He tries to fix the act. That his actions can, can make good on what makes him feel bad inside. You see, he takes his grief into his own hands and determines how he will solve it. And so we see Judas all the way up to the end living in a works-based righteousness and having no knowledge at all of God's grace. That's what his suicide was. It was a work of self-atonement. But it fails. Now before we go any further we do need to talk about the subject of suicide because I know that suicide is an issue of, of great concern in the church. And many people interpret this passage wrongly that it is because Judas committed suicide that he is a son of perdition. Is suicide the unforgivable sin? No. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, yes. But beloved, it is not an unforgivable sin. Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. The sin of suicide is forgivable. And I want to say this. If you are contemplating suicide, please reach out for help. Let counselors and friends bear that burden so that you do not make that terrible, terrible choice. Ask for help. Judas did not commit the unforgivable sin. But he was unforgivable. How? He hardened himself completely against the offer of grace. He so hardened himself against Jesus, the person who is the fountain of grace, so that repentance was impossible for him. Am I, am I 
parsing something here. I know that you can go to verses and say that, that Judas is the son of perdition, but just like last week when we saw Peter's denial is both prophesied but also fulfilled by the personality and actions of Peter, so also Judas is the son of perdition by the choices and the hardening he makes upon himself. He has hardened himself to all grace. Judas is the person that is described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, which I read and tremble at every time. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Beloved, many people read that passage and they say that must be describing somebody who is regenerate. That must be describing someone who is a true Christian based on all of the things that are described. And yet I would say you can read Judas and check every box in that paragraph. And Judas was always a son of perdition. What I am saying to you here is that Judas was so hardened that repentance was no longer available to him. There was no desire for repentance within him, and that is what makes him unforgiven and unforgivable. I stress this point to say and make clear, Judas stands to warn against all Christians who continually refuse the grace of God to be brought under conviction for their sin, to face the remorse that God wants them to experience to bring them to repentance. We are either going to respond to the word preached with a heart that breaks for repentance or with a heart that continually calluses itself to the call of repentance. Beloved, allow God's grace to bring your remorse for sin not to works solutions, but to his grace. And how do we do that? We come to repentance. We come to repentance. Godly grief is to bring us to repentance. And what is repentance? Well, again, we need to clarify something. It's more than admitting your sin. It's more than feeling bad for your sin. There's a, a beautiful uh, book uh, written by a beautiful person named Rosaria Butterfield, a, a college professor who was uh, imbibed in liberal sexuality and liberal ideologies that were absolutely in contradiction to the Bible. She hated the Bible, but she was converted 
and became a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story to, to know Rosaria Butterfield. She went from, from the most wayward of paths to being a disciple of Jesus. And her testimony is powerful, but she's written a book called Openness Unhindered where she considers what repentance means. And she considers a very popular false path that we take to be repentance. And that is simply admitting our sin and going no further. Let us read what Butterfield says. She says, admit implies that you know what you did or felt was not right. But you also know that the beating heart of this sin lives too deep inside you to disengage. She is saying that the word admit is a way for us to say, yes, we are a sinner. At the same time, one that will not change. And she illustrates this by saying, if I say I am just a hot-headed Italian and I can't help myself when I unleash my anger on my children and family, she says, I am not merely expressing that I struggle with, say, losing my temper and saying things in anger. I am also indicating that in some way I am entertaining this aspect of my personality as endemic to who I am. I am on some level granting the sin of anger an entrance into my identity. See, what she is saying is that we can get in the habit of admitting our sin. We can admit, you know, I, I, I know I have an anger problem. It's just part of my personality. And then 10 years later, you say the same thing. The admitting of sin without the addition of repenting of sin is actually a way to keep holding on to your sin. When we come to something in our life and we say, sorry, but I can't change, this is not repentance. Repentance owns the sin. It doesn't excuse it. So if simply admitting is not what we mean by repentance, what is repentance? Well, look back at Luke 22, verse 32. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, there is the definition of repentance. Turn. Turn. Repentance is not admitting simply your sin. Repentance is turning from sin to Christ. Repentance is relational. It is coming back to the one you love when your sin has taken you away. Beloved, why spend so much time talking about repentance? Because this is something that unfortunately is misunderstood in much preaching today. Repentance 
is essential to saving faith. It is impossible for us to give ourselves to Jesus Christ and not also turn ourselves away from our sins and idols. It is because Peter here repents that we read these words, and when you turn, that we know Peter's faith was real and that Peter's faith never failed. It is his repentance that proved that his confession was genuine. And that repentance is a gift of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, we are told, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see in that verse, he gives forgiveness of sins, he gives repentance. Both of those are gifts. Repentance and forgiveness. Both sides of, 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 of being saved are God's gift. The forgiveness on the cross and our coming to him in repentance are both, in that verse, his gift. And so repentance is a gift that always accompanies saving faith. It is repentance that assures us of our salvation. I love how Rosaria Butterfield says it in the same book. She says, repentance is not simply proof of failure. It is more importantly a sign of God's hand upon us. You see, it is a gift of God's grace when we repent. And so let me ask you, beloved, have you come to repentance for your sin? Are you living in repentance? I quote often Martin Luther's very first thesis in his kicking off of the Reformation, where he says, all life is Repentance. Repentance is not something in our past. Repentance is something we do every day. Why? Because we sin and fall short every day. Is repentance a part of your daily faith in Jesus? And I know that the reason that we resist repentance is because it feels like, oh my goodness, it's just... It just is going to hurt, and it's just going to be painful, and it just makes me have to look at my sin. But, beloved, these are gifts of grace. The remorse of sin is the gift that God gives us to bring us to repentance of sin, and the repentance of sin is the gift that God gives us to bring us the third gift, which is the most beautiful gift, redemption out of our sin. Look again at Luke 22. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When Peter repents, Jesus is saying, 
Your sin will not be the last word on you. Your ministry will not be known forever as the one who failed. Your ministry will be known as the one who was the rock who strengthened his brothers. The third gift that God gives to restore the sinner is redemption out of sin. And he takes Peter after three denials and tells him that you will still strengthen your brothers. You will still lead them and care for them. You will see this play itself out as we go through the book of Acts in the following weeks. But we don't have to go to the book of Acts to see how God has redeemed Peter and this terrible moment. It's right here in the Bible. Why do we have the story of Peter's denials? The reason is that Peter made sure it was in the Bible. He told it to his disciple Mark who records this terrible event. Why does Peter allow this memory to live on forever? Because Peter has been redeemed. And now he wants this story to be a story that serves the church. He wants everyone to know the dangerousness of Satan but also the amazingness of God's grace. He has been so set free of the bondage of this sin by his repentance that he is able to redeem his lowest moment. I should say God redeems his lowest moment into a source of strength and encouragement for the church. This is what God can do. This is what God does do as he redeems us. God redeems Peter's fall for the good of the church. Truly, he is able to bring good out of all things. Now, in saying this point, I do want to make two quick clarifications. That God redeems us out of our sin and even uses our sin to accomplish some good is not meant to ever be taken as a permission for sin. We are never to pursue sin. We are to be remorseful over sin, to avoid it at all costs. And second, just because God redeems even these things does not mean that our sin does not still have consequences. It simply means that when we truly repent, God can and does redeem even the worst parts of our story. One example of that is the hymn Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. The story of John Newton is that he was a slave trader, He made a fortune transporting slaves from Africa to the Americas. He did all sorts of brutal, seemingly completely despicable things. And yet God's grace came to him. 
And God's grace redeemed him. And God's grace made him a pastor who not only wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which has fed the church because John Newton knew deeper than anyone how amazing that grace is by the depths he was rescued from. But even more than that, he became the pastor of William Wilberforce who became the champion of anti-slavery in England. This is the God that we serve. Those who come to him in remorse over their sin and repentance over their sin can see God redeem even their lowest moments for the good of the church and for his glory. Peter was sifted like wheat And as we leave this passage, it's it's appropriate for us to recognize the two different senses of sifted like wheat. For the longest time, I took sifted like wheat to be entirely negative. Satan sifts Peter like wheat, meaning he disintegrates him. He shows him how weak and fragile he is. He shows how easily he is at being torn apart. that's, That's what sifted like wheat meant last week. But here's the amazing thing about God. God uses our sifting like wheat to separate the chaff and make us more pure, make us more completely his, make us more able to strengthen his brothers. That is what God's grace does. It is able to take our sifting And make us more fitting for his service. The Apostle Paul knew this. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 15 and 16. He could say, let me turn there. He could say these words. Which is right here. 115 to 16, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the amazing power of God and his grace. Do not refuse the remorse for sin that he puts in your heart. Follow his grace into repentance and let him show you that he is able to redeem you even out of your sin. Beloved, do not run from him with your sin. Turn to him, and he will transform your sinful life into a beautiful picture of his amazing grace. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.